0: Section 34 of Cyropedia, The Education of Cyrus, by Xenophone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cyropedia, The Education of Cyrus, by Xenophone. Translated by H. G. Dakins. Book 8, Chapter 1. Such were the words of Cyrus, and Chrysantas rose up after him, saying, Gentlemen, this is not the first time I have had occasion to observe that a good ruler differs in no respect from a good father. Even as a father takes thought that blessings may never fail his children, so Cyrus would commend to us the ways by which we can preserve our happiness. And yet, on one point, it seemed to me he had spoken less fully than he might, and I will try to explain it for the benefit of those who have not learnt it. I would have you ask yourselves, was ever a hostile city captured by an undisciplined force? Did ever an undisciplined garrison save a friendly town? When discipline was gone, did ever an army conquer is ever disaster nearer than when each soldier thinks about his private safety only nay in peace as in war can any good be gained if men will not obey their betters what city could be at rest lawful and orderly what household could be safe what ship Sail home to her haven? And we, to what do we owe our triumph, if not to our obedience? We obeyed. We were ready to follow the call by night and day. We marched behind our leader, ranks that nothing could resist. We left nothing half done of all we were told to do. If obedience is the one path to win the highest good, remember, it is also the one way to preserve it. Now, in the old days, doubtless, many of us ruled no one else. We were simply ruled. But today you find yourselves rulers, one and all of you, some over many and some over few. And just as you would wish your subjects to obey you, so we must obey those who are set over us. Yet there should be this difference between ourselves and slaves. A slave renders unwilling service to his Lord. But we, if we claim to be freemen, must do of our own free will what which we see to be the best. And you will find, he added, that even when no single man is ruler, that city, which is most careful to obey authority, is the last to bow to the will of her enemies. Let us listen to the words of Cyrus. Let us gather round the public buildings and train ourselves, so that we may keep our hold on all we care for and offer ourselves to Cyrus for this noble ends. Of one thing we may be sure, Cyrus will never put us to any service which can make for his own good and not for ours. Our needs are the same as his, and our foes the same. When Chrysantas had said his say, many others followed to support him, and allies alike and it was agreed that the men of rank and honour should be in attendance continually at the palace gates ready for cyrus to employ until he gave them their dismissal that custom is still in force and to this day the asiatics under the great king wait at the door of their rulers and the measures that Cyrus instituted to preserve his empire as set forth in this account are still the law of the land, maintained by all the kings who followed him. Only as in other matters, so here, with a good ruler, the government is pure, with a bad one, corrupt thus it came about that the nobles of cyrus and all his honourable men waited at his gates with their weapons and their horses according to the common consent of the gallant men who had helped to lay the empire at his feet then cyrus turned to other matters and appointed various overseers he had receivers of revenue controllers of finance ministers of works guardians of property superintendents of the household moreover he chose managers for his horses and his dogs men who could be trusted to keep the creatures in the best condition and ready for use at any moment but when it came to those who were to be his fellow guardians for the commonwealth, he would not leave the care and the training of these to others. He regarded that as his own personal task. He knew, if he were ever to fight a battle, he would have to choose his comrades and supporters, the men on his right hand and left, from these and these alone it was from them he must appoint his officers for horse and foot if he had to send out a general alone it would be from them that one must be sent he must depend on them for satraps and governors over cities and nations he would require them for ambassadors and an embassy was he knew the best means for obtaining what he wanted without war he foresaw that nothing could go well if the agents in his weightiest affairs were not what they ought to be while if they were everything would prosper this charge therefore he took upon his own shoulders and he was persuaded that the training he demanded of others should also be undergone by himself. No man could rouse others to noble deeds if he fell short of what he ought to be himself. The more he pondered the matter, the more he felt the need of leisure, if he were to deal worthily with the highest matters. It was, he felt, impossible to neglect the revenues in view of the enormous funds necessary for so vast an empire, yet he foresaw that if he was always to be occupied with the multitude of his possessions, he would never have time to watch over the safety of the whole. As he pondered how he could compass both objects, the prosperity of the finances and the leisure he required, the old military organization came into his mind. He remembered how the captains of ten supervised the squads of ten, and were supervised themselves by the company captains, and they by the captains of the thousands, and these by the captains of ten thousands, and thus. Even with hundreds of thousands, not a man was left without supervision and, when the general wished to employ his troops, one order to the captains of ten thousands was enough. On this principle, Cyrus arranged his finances and held his departments together. In this way, by conferring with a few officers. He could keep the whole system under his control, and actually have more leisure for himself than the manager of a single household or the master of a single ship. Finally, having thus ordered his own affairs, he taught those about him to adopt the same system. Accordingly. Having gained the leisure he needed for himself and his friends, he could devote himself to his work of training his partners and colleagues. In the first place, he dealt with those who, enabled as they were to live on the labor of others, yet failed to present themselves at the palace. He would send for them and seek them out, convinced. That attendance would be wholesome for them. They would be unwilling to do anything base or evil. Back. They would be unwilling to do anything base or evil in the presence of their king and under the eye of their noblest men. Those who were absent were so through self-indulgence or wrongdoing or carelessness. "'and I will now set forth how he brought them to attend.' "'He would go to one of his most intimate friends "'and bid him lay hands on the property of the offender, "'asserting that it was his own. "'Then, of course, the truants would appear, "'at once crying out that they had been robbed. "'But somehow, for many days, Cyrus could never find leisure to hear their complaints, and when he did listen, he took care to defer judgment for many more. This was one way he had of teaching them to attend. Another was to assign the latest and most profitable tasks to those who were punctual, and the third to give nothing whatever to the offenders but the most effective of all for those who paid no heed to gentler measures was to deprive the truant of what he possessed and bestow it on him who would come when he was needed by this process cyrus gave up a useless friend and gained a serviceable one to this day the king sends for and seeks out those who do not present themselves when they should. Such was his method with the truants. With those who came forward he felt, since he was their rightful leader, that he could best incite them to noble deeds by trying to show that he himself and all the virtues that became a man he believed that men do grow better through written laws, and he held that the good ruler is a living law, with eyes that see, inasmuch as he is competent to guide, and also to detect the sinner and chastise him. Thus he took pains to show that he was the more assiduous in his service though the gods the higher his fortunes rose. It was at this time that the Persian priests, the Magians, were first established as an order, and always at break of day Cyrus chanted a hymn and sacrificed to such of the gods as they might name. And the ordinances he established service to this day at the court of the reigning king. These were the first matters in which the Persians set themselves to copy their prince, feeling their own fortune would be the higher if they did reverence to the gods, following the man who was fortune's favourite and their own monarch. At the same time, no doubt, they thought they would please Cyrus by this. On his side, Cyrus looked on the piety of his subjects as a blessing to himself, reckoning as they do who prefer to sail in the company of pious men rather than with those who are suspected of wicked deeds. And he reckoned further that if all his partners were God fearing, they would be the less prone to crime against each other or against himself for he knew he was the benefactor of his fellows. And by showing plainly his own deep desire never to be unfair to friend or fellow combatant or ally, but always to fix his eyes on justice and rectitude, he believed he could induce others to keep from base actions and walk in the paths of righteousness and he would bring more modesty he hoped into the hearts of men if it were plain that he himself reverenced all the world and would never say a shameful word to any man or woman or do a shameful deed he looked for this because he saw that apart from kings and governors who may be supposed to inspire fear men. Will reverence the modest and not the shameless, and modesty in women will inspire modesty in the men who behold them. And his people, he thought, would learn to obey if it were plain that he honoured frank and prompt obedience even above virtues that made a grander show and were harder to attain. Such was his belief and his practice went with it to the end. His own temperance and the knowledge of it made others more tempered. When they saw moderation and self-control in the man who above all others had license to be insolent, lesser men were the more ready to abjure all insolence of their own. But there was this difference. Cyrus held between modesty and self control. The modest man will do nothing shameful in the light of day, but the man of self control, nothing base, not even in secret. Self restraint, he believed, would best be cultivated if he made men see in himself one who could not be dragged from the pursuit of virtue by the pleasure of the moment one who chose to toil first for the happy-hearted joys that go hand in hand with beauty and nobleness thus being the man he was he established at his gates a stately company where the lower gave place to the higher and they in their turn showed reverence to each other and courtesy and perfect harmony among them all there was never a cry of anger to be heard, nor burst of insolent laughter. To look at them was to know that they lived for honors and loveliness. Such was the life at the palace gates, and to practice his nobles in martial exercises he would lead them out to the hunt whenever he thought it well holding the chase to be the best training for war and the surest way to excellence in horsemanship. A man learns to keep his seat, no matter what the ground may be, as he follows the flying quarry, learns to hurl and strike on horseback in his eagerness to bring down the game and win applause. And here, above all, was the field in which to injure his colleagues to toil and hardship and cold and heat and hunger and thirst thus to this day the persian monarch and his court spend their leisure in the chase from all that has been said it is clear cyrus was convinced that no one has a right to rule who is not superior to his subjects, and he held that by imposing such exercises as these on those about him, he would lead them to self-control and bring to perfection the art and the discipline of war. Accordingly, he would put himself at the head of the hunting parties and take them out himself unless he was bound to stay at home, and, if he was, he would hunt in his parks among the wild creatures he had reared. He would never touch the evening meal himself until he had sweated for it, nor give his horses their corn until they had been exercised, and he would invite his own mace-bearers to join him in the chase. Therefore he excelled in all knightly accomplishments he and those about him because of their constant practice such was the example he set before his friends but he also kept his eye on others and would single out those who worshipped noble deeds and reward them with gifts and high commands and seats at festivals and every kind of honor, and thus their hearts were filled with ambition, and every man longed to outdo his fellows in the eyes of Cyrus. But we seem to learn also that Cyrus thought it necessary for the ruler not only to surpass his subjects by his own native worth, but also to charm them through deception and artifice at any rate he adopted the median dress and persuaded his comrades to do likewise he thought it concealed any bodily defect enhancing the beauty and stature of the wearer the shoe for instance was so devised that a sole could be added without notice and the man would seem taller than he really was so also cyrus encouraged the use of ointments to make the eyes more brilliant and pigments to make the skin look fairer and he trained his courtiers never to spit or blow the nose in public or turn aside to stare at anything they were to keep the stately air of persons whom nothing can surprise there were all means to one end, to make it impossible for the subjects to despise their rulers. Thus he molded the men he considered worthy of command by his own example, by the training he gave them, and by the dignity of his own leadership. But the treatment of those he prepared for slavery was widely different not one of them would he incite to any noble toil he would not even let them carry arms and he was careful that they should never lack food or drink in any manly sort when the beaters drove the wild creatures into the plain he would allow food to be brought for the servants but not for the freemen on a march he would lead the slaves to the water springs as he led the beasts of burden or when it was the hour of breakfast he would wait himself till they had taken a snatch of food and stayed their wolfish hunger and the end of it was they called him their father even as the nobles did because he cared for them but the object of his care was to keep them slaves forever thus he secured the safety of the persian empire he himself he felt sure ran no danger from the massages of the conquered people he saw they had no courage no unity and no discipline and moreover not one of them could ever come near him, day or night. But there were others whom he knew to be true warriors, who carried arms, and who held by one another commanders of horse and foot, many of them men of spirit, confident, as he could plainly see, of their own power to rule, men who were in close touch with his own guards and many of them in constant intercourse with himself, as indeed was essential if he was to make any use of them at all. It was from them that danger was to be feared, and that in a thousand ways. How was he to guard against it? He rejected the idea of disarming them. He thought this unjust and that it would lead to the dissolution of the empire to refuse them admission into his presence to show them his distrust would be he considered a declaration of war but there was one method he felt worth all the rest an honorable method and one that would secure his safety absolutely, to win their friendship if he could, and make them more devoted to himself than to each other. I will now endeavor to set forth the methods, so far as I conceive them, by which he gained their love. End of section 34